It's our last installment in sort of a mini installment on the Ten Commandments. So we've done four sermons on the Ten Commandments, which come in the book of Exodus. So if you've got the book of, if you've got a Bible with you, turn to the book of Exodus, second book in the Bible. We're going to do our time of teaching. And as always, there's a lot to teach. Um, these are the big, broad brushstrokes that God gives his people, Israel, to teach them how to live. And today we get to talk about the Tenth Commandment, which is... Uh, Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's stuff. And this is a big one. This is a big one. So um, I had written my sermon. I, had, I was feeling really good about it and finished it up yesterday. And I was like, okay, done. Not going to touch it. And then literally I walked out of the coffee shop I was working in. And it's kind of fun to be able to work in coffee shops again. Um, I walked out and I got into my car and my car turned on, and, and my uh, stereo system went immediately to my CD. You guys heard about CDs? Compact discs. They're things you used to put into slots, and I had recently put in a new CD. When I was cleaning out my garage, I found an old mix CD that my wife Allie had made. I knew it was hers. It had her perfect handwriting on it, and... Um, I was like, I'd like to see, this is like a week ago, I'd, I'd like to see what she was listening to back in the early 2000s. And so, dusted it off, it was dirty, I put it in, and I was just sort of going through it anytime my car would default to CD and I wasn't listening uh, to Spotify or something like that. And I popped in my car, and all of a sudden, this song from 2002 popped up, uh, Gray Street by the Dave Matthews Band. Some of you guys are like, who's Dave Matthews? Well, if there's no other reason to know Dave Matthews, he literally has lived for the last 20 years 15 blocks from here. He's a Wallingford native, almost. Well, he's from South Africa, moved to Virginia, but then he's been in Seattle for the last many decades. I think, actually, he recently moved to the Green Lake neighborhood, but let's not hold that against him. So he is from here. I've seen him at Herkimer Coffee on the Ave., uh, and anyhow, he's one of us, and, and I used to love Dave Matthews. In fact, when I was in college, I actually learned about 20 songs. Um, you see, nobody invites me up to play music because I only learned about 20, and one of the songs I learned was Gray Street by Dave Matthews, and so the song comes on, and I probably listened to it 25 times since yesterday at 2 o'clock. Because there was something in it that resonated so deeply with me. Something I'd heard in it that I'd never heard before. And that's, that's what happens. When your life is in the, the Word of God and you're reading, things that meant something to you enough to learn that song 20 years ago, I learned something new because the Word of God pulled something out. Something that was in the heart of Dave Matthews when he wrote this song. Maybe he didn't even fully understand, but the Word of God helps us understand it. And I listened to this song afresh and anew and something Change me. So I'm going to read to you the lyrics because I want to invite you into my consideration. So one of the things we do at Sidiris, this is why cohorts are so important. We invite others into the consideration that's happening in our life as God reveals things to us, shows things to us. We come and commit to share that with others because who knows how it might bless. So I don't know how this might bless you, but I'm going to share with you how this tied to coveting for me. Now this song, I think, is about someone who is... Deep, struggling with deep depression. And as somebody who struggled with depression himself, it resonates with me. Maybe it'll resonate with you. So let me read you the lyrics and I'll explain a few other things. It says this. Oh, look at how she listens. She says nothing of what she thinks. She just goes stumbling through her memories, staring out onto Gray Street. She thinks, hey, how did I come to this? I dreamt myself a thousand times around the world, but I can't get out of this place. There's an emptiness inside of her, and she'd do anything to fill it in. But all the colors mix together to gray, and it breaks her heart. How she wishes it was different, she prays to God most every night. And though she swears he doesn't listen, there's still a hope in her he might. She says, I pray. Oh, but they fall on deaf ears. Am I supposed to take it on myself to get out of this place? 
oh, there's a loneliness inside of her. And she'd do anything to fill it in. And though it's red blood bleeding through her now, it feels like cold blue ice on her heart when all the colors mix together to gray. It breaks her heart. And this is what struck me this week. I never really heard it. It says, there's a stranger speaks outside her door. Says, take what you can from your dreams. Make them as real as anything. Oh, it'll take the work out of the courage. But she says, please, there's a crazy man that's creeping outside my door. I live on the corner of Gray Street and the end of the world. Oh, there's an emptiness inside her, and she'd do anything to fill it in. And though it's red blood bleeding from her now, it feels like cold blue ice on her heart. She feels like kicking out all the windows and setting fire to this life. She could change everything about her using colors bold and bright. But all the colors mixed together to gray. I don't know if you've ever been there and felt that. I have. And I was like, why is this song resonating so deeply with me after studying about coveting and God's cry for us not to covet our neighbor's stuff? And I started to realize, I think, that there's a deep, profound, subconscious connection between covetedness and depression. That when I'm constantly looking at what other people have and what I don't have, it will bleed to gray. That all the colors that are real and bright, you hear it in the song, that are unique and beautiful and good, when I start to compare them next to other people's colors, it starts to look like gray. I said, maybe that's it. Because what have we said? God doesn't just give us the laws just because. He gives us the law because there's a better way to live. A way that lives to joy, not depression. To hope, not despair. And, and so when we, when we listen now to why God calls us not to covet, or, or as you'll see, how to covet correctly, maybe this will resonate with you as it did for me. Now, let me come back to this line that just, I mean, if, if I, I, you got to understand something. There's a point in the song, and I'd highly recommend if you go back and listen to Gray Street, that the song sort of crescendos to the end. And I remember when I used to know how to play this song, I would sit in my dorm room in college, and I would just scream. There's a, there's a, there's a note at the end that's just him basically screaming. And I was in my car literally screaming, driving down the freeway, and I'm wondering if people saw me and were like, you know, I noticed people slowing down, <laughs> you know, kind of like moving lanes. It was a nice free ride for me. But, but there's something when you feel like you will covet. That's I want you to hear that. Covet means to desire. You will covet. But when, those th- when you're coveting in the wrong thing, it's like this it's it's like this churning that happens in your soul and sometimes like maybe you just need to scream out that passion and I did that yesterday and it was so freeing to be freed from all that desire all that pent up that's focused in the wrong place if you listen to the song maybe you'll know what I'm talking about but there was this line that says there's a stranger who speaks outside my door And says this, take what you can from your dreams. Make them as real as anything. That'll take the work out of courage. It's like, what is that? And and, and and her response is almost like she's calling 911. There's a crazy man that's creeping outside my door. I live on the corner of Gray Street. Help me. And, And my mind went back. Exodus, second book of the Torah. Second book of the Bible. First book, Genesis. In the fourth chapter of Genesis, do you know what it says? Sin crouches at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Do you know what the context of that verse is? 
that same refrain is repeated again and again in the New Testament. This idea that there's someone tempting you, drawing you, playing on your desires. You must rule over the evil one. The context of this is the story of Cain and Abel. The first two children of Adam and Eve. And Abel brings a sacrifice to God that God receives as pleasing. And Cain brings a sacrifice that isn't his best. And God rejects it. And Cain gets so upset. He gets so angry. He covets so much the praise that his brother got from God. Do you know what Cain does? If you know the story. Takes his brother out to a field where he thinks no one can see. And he takes his brother's life. His covetousness to be like his brother is so strong that it leads him to what? Taking life, something only God has the authority to do. And Cain is cursed because sin crouched at his door. And God warned him, but Cain let his covetousness rule over him. You know who Cain might be a little bit like? His parents, because all you got to do is go one chapter before. And the serpent comes to Adam and Eve in the garden, Eve first. And she sees that the fruit is good to eat. But God said, the only fruit that's my fruit, that is not your fruit, is the fruit in the middle of the garden, in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But she sees that it's good, and it is. She's attracted to a good and a beautiful thing, but God said, that's mine, not yours. Don't touch that. And there's sin who creeps up and crouches at Eve's door and says, does God really want your best? Why doesn't he want you to have that? And if you know the story, do you know what, what the tempter says? Maybe God doesn't want you to be like him. Because when you eat of that, you will be like God. And Eve began to what? The temptation churned to covetedness. And she said, I want to be like God. I want to know good and evil for myself. And she saw that it was good. And she ate. She gave some to her husband, and he ate. And their relationship with God was broken. And they were banned from the garden. They were removed from God's presence. Because attraction turned to temptation, turned to covetousness, turned to taking the fruit. Take what you can from your dreams. Make them as real as anything. Take the work out of courage. This is why God gives us the law. We've been saying it for the last four weeks. God is moving his people out of Egypt, and he's moving them into a new land. He's moving them out of old ways, and he's moving them into new ways. He's moving them out of old moral sensibility and moving them into new moral sensibility. He's moving them out of the worship of old things and into the worship of new things, which is him. The one true God, Yahweh. And so he gives us these commands, these ten words, and says... Let these guide your life. And the final, the final command. Pay attention to the first for sure, but then also pay attention to the last. And the last says, let's read it together. Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Or, your, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And then it goes on to say, and then God stopped talking, and the people were terrified. And, and the people said, Moses, you talk to God. And Moses, of course, does. And we've talked about how then the next three chapters are like case law. But what's interesting is there's no case laws that, that, that I see that directly tie to this 10th commandment of coveting. 
Why is that? What we'll see is this is much broader in scope and covers so much ground and actually sheds light on the other nine commandments. So that's what we're going to look at today. So let me, um, let me actually now read all ten commandments so that we remember where we are because like I said, the tenth is going to actually reveal something about all nine others. So chapter 20, starting in verse 1. You there? Here we go. And God spoke all these words. That's why sometimes you hear us say commandments or words. Actually, it never, the Bible never says commandments. They just say words, but sort of confusing, so we call them the Ten Commandments. He spoke all these words. Verse 2, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Why should we listen to God? Because he's rescued us. In the same way, we've always said this, we don't try to follow Jesus' way just because we follow this way because he gave his life for us. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall make for yourself, no, or you shall not make for yourself carved images or, uh, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to or serve them. So don't make idols. I'm going to just skip down here. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord, Yahweh, your God, in vain. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your servant or your uh, female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Jump down verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that Yahweh your God is giving to you. Sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Seventh, you shall not commit adultery. Eighth, you shall not steal. Ninth, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And then we get to the tenth. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's servants, your neighbor's oxen or donkeys or anything that is your neighbor's. Okay, so what does this mean? <laughs> What does covet mean? Well, actually, it just means deeply desire. You could, you could translate it crave. And actually, it's a, new, it's a neutral term. It's, I mean, we, we tend to think of it as the connotation because of the Ten Commandments of a negative thing, but we see later in the Bible that it says God covets. Same Hebrew word. So if God does it, it means it's not evil in and of itself. So what makes it wrong? And that's why you see in the commandment it's attached to Certain objects, which is what? Your neighbor's stuff. So when you covet certain things, it is wrong. You could covet proper things, and it's right. That'll be important, you'll see, as we go. Um, so for instance, you see here, don't covet your neighbor's wife. That doesn't mean coveting marriage. Wanting to have a wife or wanting to have a husband is bad. But when you start looking at your friend's husband or your friend's wife, and you say, man, I'd... Sure, like, and you start to deeply crave and desire and ruminate on that, it's now turned into sin. You see how that works? So coveting is not wrong, but it's what you're coveting. So, so what we'll see now is uh, to desire deeply or to crave or to covet something can, can, can be very wrong and, and, and destroy you from the inside out. And that's what we'll see about this, this final command. What have you noticed about the first nine? They're very external things. Particularly the commands we looked at last week, right? The horizontal commands of loving your neighbor well. We've said the first four are about loving God, vertical. The last six are about loving neighbor. Jesus says in these two commands, you have the fulfillment of the whole law. To love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. He's summarizing the law including the Ten Commandments. And in these horizontal commands, this final one is the only one that's truly an internalization of these external principles. Now, this is not so different than what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're familiar with that. We've referenced this a few times. Jesus says, 
You've heard it said that if you commit adultery, you've sinned against God. I say to you, if you even look at a woman or man with lustful intent who is not your spouse, you've already committed adultery in your heart. That's covetousness. So Jesus does this as well. And what he's really doing is expanding the law of love far beyond what we tend to think it is. So now he's moving from the external, and this final command is so profound because it actually moves inside. You can even sin before you do anything with your hands, your feet, your mouth. You can have already sinned against a holy God. So let's look at verse 11. Let's, let's look at some examples now of what, what I'm talking about. Okay, uh, verse 11. Uh, excuse me, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. House, so yikes, <laughs> I can't covet my neighbor's house. Um, let me pause real quick. What does neighbor mean? Does that mean I, I'm fine as long as it's not the house to my left or to my right, but it's like just a few blocks down? No, sorry. <laughs> neighbor means anyone that you come into contact with. Jesus will clarify that for us in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Your na- who is my neighbor? The Pharisees asked, and Jesus says, everyone. Everyone that you come into contact with, any fellow human being, no matter their social class, no matter their ethnicity, it doesn't matter. Every single human being that you come into contact with is your neighbor. Therefore, and this is why we must be upset at the automobile, Because during COVID, one of my favorite things to do when I was going crazy in my house and Allie was working was to pack my boys up in the car and we would drive around the nice neighborhoods of Seattle and covet everyone's house. I was like, not my neighbor. This is like a mile north of where I live. The automobile has made this very challenging because you are coming into contact with many different houses. (laughs) Not so true back in the day. You would have been a bit more confined to your farm and your neighbor's farm and whatnot. But, but nowadays, we're coming into contact with a lot of neighbors' houses, and it's tough to not see, ooh, I like that deck. Oh, how'd they get their yard to look like that? I mean, this is Seattle. How is their grass so green? No weeds. You see? We've expanded it. Now, imagine how hard it would be if there was like a television show that came around in the early 2000s called Cribs, and then we could literally just sit in our house and covet people's homes. Oh, my gosh. Luckily, there's nothing called the Internet where we can search the greatest houses around the world and see them in a heartbeat. But you see, as technologies advance, covetousness has advanced, which I don't think, I have no statistics to prove this, but depression in this country in particular has gone up tremendously because covetousness has gone up tremendously. So, my neighbor's house. What's next? You say, I'm a renter for life, amen. It's the new way. Maybe I don't struggle with that one. How about this? You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And of course, the Bible, you know, is implying or husband, okay? So your neighbor's spouse. Thou shall not covet. Let me explain something before we get into this one. Um... I've already already sort of alluded to it, but let me just get very clear on it. When you see something beautiful, your neighbor's wife might be beautiful, your friend's wife might be beautiful, your friend's husband could be very good looking, could have a lot of qualities that you see, see attractive. There is nothing wrong with that. You are creating the image of God, the creator of beauty, and so when you recognize beauty, when you're attracted to beauty, that is not a sin. Nothing wrong with that. But here's how the waterfall happens. If you let your eye linger or your thoughts spin, now what comes in is that thing that crouches at the door and starts to tempt you. And being attracted or recognizing beauty then leads into temptation. And the temptation is now to either think about or fantasize or even maybe, maybe I should start spending more time with. And it's temptation And the next thing after temptation is not outright adultery. The next thing after temptation is what? Covetousness. It's moved in my mind now from I'm being tempted 
to now I've fully embraced in my thought life, in my heart life, this beauty that I've seen in the world. My neighbor's wife, my coworker, who is not my spouse. You see what's going on? We forget about this step of covetousness, which is why Jesus pulls it out for us, which is why it's the 10th commandment. Just, oh, you think you're doing okay now. Let me remind you that you can have adultery in your heart long before you ever do anything with your hands. So it goes attraction, not bad. Temptation, not a sin. And then when I don't fight back against that temptation, when I don't rid it from my life, eventually it will rule over me instead of I ruling over it, and it will turn to covetousness, and I'll crave something that is not mine but is my neighbor's or if you're if if you're young and single someone who is not yet my wife or not yet anyone's wife or not yet anyone's husband I will begin to act in my heart as if they are my wife and my husband but yet they're going to marry somebody else not me down the line how do I protect my heart I see the beauty that's fine I'm even tempted. That happens. Even Jesus was tempted. But he never let his heart turn to covetousness for something that was not given to him by God. And that's the key. This is the principle. How do you avoid letting temptation slip to covetousness? The principle of surprised gratitude. Surprised gratitude. So I know most of the married men at Sedaris, personally. Small enough church, I know most of you. Here's here's the thing I also know. I look at you, brothers... And I pray for you, and I hope the best things for you. But then typically, when I look at the women that you've married, I say in my mind, this is a divine miracle. I don't know how this happened. God has changed the eyes of this woman to see something beautiful that is not yet beautiful, okay? And I am so awestruck by this that the only thing I can do is drop to my knees and praise God that these men finally have someone to help them. That's literally what happens most of the time. How did this happen? You should have that, men, when you look at your own wife. How did this happen? Surprised gratitude. Thank you, God. This amazing, personal, loving, smart, funny being that you've given me to share my life with. If that doesn't become a normal practice in your life, surprised gratitude of had this happen, you'll slip into covetousness. You'll start looking at somebody else's wife, and you'll start saying, must be good how do you foster a life of surprised gratitude I can't believe it wives you got to do the same thing here I know I just went after your husbands but these are good men if they're watching this right now they love the Lord they want to know his word they they want even though they might not know how to do it they want to lead their family to come and worship Jesus and the one true God. You're lucky. Thank God. And we can do surprise gratitude in every other color of life. Oh, this apple. It's so red. It's so good. How did I get so lucky? This chair, this roof over my head, these friends. But so often we look elsewhere. Well, I wonder what it would be like to have that or this or that kind of money or that car or that house. And that leads to covetousness, which will eventually at some point turn into sins, external sins of the hands, the feet, the mouth, divorce, whatever it may be. And this principle works in every category. You're like, I don't have a lot of ox or donkey. I don't, I don't typically get tempted to covet my neighbors just think of any material possession man that new car looks like it runs well maybe you don't even have a car but that you can get a car to come pick you up on your phone just a few dollars or you have a bus that can pick you up Um, imagine (laughs) there's people around the world that don't have that how do I see the things that I have as gifts from God rather than always comparing other people's stuff so he talks about male and female servants well different context different time 3,500 years ago the world was different 
What does this look like today? Maybe it's looking at your coworkers. Oh, if I had better coworkers. Man, I wonder what it's like to be a part of that company over there with those resources and that office space. I wonder it's like to have a boss like that or employees that worked hard or showed up on time. <laughs> this is what's going. All this stuff, we do it today. The words we might use are different, but it's the same. So, you say to yourself, well, I think I'm doing okay. I'm not doing, it's not, you know, I'm not really coveting all that stuff. I'm happy with my job, and I don't really get caught up in material possession and all this stuff. Uh, let's just look at the last thing that he says. You're not going to like this. Or anything that is your neighbor's. <laughs> anything. You want to know what anything means in the Hebrew? Hebrew scholars study this in seminary. You know what anything means? It means anything, everything, <laughs> all things, anyone. It means everything. So literally, nothing's off the table. You can't covet anything that is not yours or wasn't meant for you that somebody else has and say, I want that. That's not, that's not bad to want a good thing, but to, to look at somebody else's stuff and say, if I don't have that, I won't be happy. God says that's a sin. So what could this be? This could be, like I said, job. This could be looking at other people's kids and saying, oh man, it would be nice to have kids, period, or those kids in particular, to look at family dynamics, your extended family, to look at people's vacation life, travel life, to look at someone's hair color, body type, eye color, skill set, talent. I get this when I sing in church. Singing voice. It could be anything. Now those aren't bad things, but to say, I need to have that, I want to have that, life would be so good if I had that. You've now coveted. A silly one for me, as a pastor, I used to do this all the time, Pastor Ryan can vouch for me, and I would call him sometimes and say, get my mind off of this. This was in the early days before Laura Merlet fixed our website. I used to go to other churches' websites and be like, man, that's a nice website. And I would like spend so much time looking at, I'm like, what am I doing? I would get caught up in this really weird, it was like the weirdest thing. Man, I wonder, they must have so many resources and people that do this and Thanks be to Squarespace. <laughs> now anybody can have a professional-looking website. 1999. No, I get paid for this stuff. No, I don't. But I can get caught up in covetousness so easily in strange ways. And God says anything. Anything. <sighs> Remember, though, attraction's not bad. Recognizing beauty and goodness isn't wrong. But be careful that it doesn't turn into self-loathing. Ah, oh, look at our website. Ungodly desire leading you to unrighteousness or forgetfulness and, un, and, and a lack of gratitude to God who has given you so many things. When it does that, you're in trouble and you'll feel it and the colors will mix together and they'll turn to gray. And God doesn't want that. He's given you so many things. He wants you to experience that as a gift from a loving father. Now, I said that this is also an internalization of the law. So let's really quickly show you how that is. So like command one, you shall not have any other God besides me. I'm your only God, the only one you can worship. You know what you can do? It's easy to look at people who are universalists and get to like worship all sorts of things and kind of have the old country buffet of worship and say, that looks pretty good. That's like new age religion, just takes a little bit of everything, mashes it up and presents it. And I don't have to, like, say Jesus is the only way. I can, like, kind of say whatever works for you is good for you. Man, I can covet that, right? I can covet people that get to worship all sorts of gods. See, my heart, I usually don't tell people that. I feel that way sometimes. Command number two. Don't make any idols. Don't make any carved images. What is this really about? Well, this is about having a religion that you have tangible control over. Because I have, I have a little idol in my house and I can, I can burn incense to it. Or I, I, can, I can do real things and I can kind of control these gods. That's what idol worship is about. And God says, I'm so much bigger than that. You cannot control me. You can't put me into a carved image and think that represents me. God says, he looks at you and me. He says, you're my image. Don't make any other images. You're my representatives in the world. But, but I can covet that. 
having, what is that? Having a religious system that is, is man-made and controllable. Think about this as a pastor for me. I would love to come in here and tell you, listen, if you give to this temple, if you give to this church, if you give to my salary, God will give you ten times. If you give to this church, if you come on Sundays, if you participate in all the ways that we think you should, God will forgive you of your sins. And God says, that's not how it works. He says, I saved you before my name was ever on your lips, before this building was ever built, before that pastor ever got his call. I sent my son to die for your sin. It is finished. There's nothing that you can do to add to it. So any pastor that tells you, you sow in here and you'll reap, They've coveted the second command, and they've tried to replicate it in a Christian sense. It's by faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone, just like we sang. And you don't got to do anything that I recommend you do to be saved apart from that. But I can covet, (laughs) and I have. Wow, it would be nice to sell indulgences, to sell forgiveness, to make myself so irreplaceable (laughs) that no one's prayers are heard by God unless they come through me. Just not true. God says, don't do anything silly like that. I'm so much bigger than these folks that say that. Command number three. This is the command to not take the Lord's name in vain. Pastor Ryan talked about that. That's like God says, I've put my name on your forehead, so live your life as though you are mine. Don't take that for in vain. I can covet that. I can covet those people that don't live as representatives of Jesus. I can covet that. Man, it would be nice not to have to think when I check out at the grocery store and the line's a little bit long and I get a little cranky that I'm not representing Jesus. Or when I'm out at the club and and people know that I'm a Christian and they watch the way I act, how much I drink, how I treat women. That could be not. I can covet that kind of anonymous lifestyle where God's name is not on my forehead. God says that's a sin, to covet, not even to do it, but to covet that kind of anonymity as God's people. Command number four, the command of the Sabbath. Think about how many board members or stockholders of the (laughs) Chick-fil-A just say, well, how much would this stock price go up if we just had one extra day of business? I mean, how many times have I gone to Chick-fil-A on Sunday and been like, ah, that's right, it's closed. You see that? You could covet the people who get to work all seven days and the kind of profits that they could make if they just made their slaves and their sons and their daughters and their workers work all the time. God says, not in my holy nation. Command number five. This is the command to honor your father and your mother. And we talked about that. A big part of this is like honoring them by taking care of them when they no longer can take care of themselves. You don't think you could covet somebody whose maybe parents are no longer around? You couldn't find your heart slipping into a place of of maybe kind of hoping that they don't live an extra long time? You see, you, you can covet in all of these ways when you see other people's situations. And it would be nice to be free of their responsibility command number six god says don't murder that one's pretty straightforward we've talked about that jesus says even in your heart you can murder somebody if you hate them yikes i was actually as i was preparing the sermon at the coffee shop there was a group of like 70 year old women that were talking and i literally heard this phrase come out of their mouth i was so angry i could have killed someone (laughs) and i was like "Mm, there's a prompting of the spirit (laughs) Don't do it. (laughs) Okay, so you've heard that saying, so angry I could kill someone. I've been so angry I could kill someone, I've broken the 10th command. I've coveted. Number seven, do not commit adultery. That's even lusting after a man or woman who is not your spouse. Command 10, desiring your neighbor's physical possession. That one seems um, pretty obvious here. That's like stealing in your heart, right? The internalization of the law. And then finally, command nine, which is don't give false testimony in a court of law, how, how do you covet in that one, you might say? How, how, how do I, how, what's the internalization of that law? Which is, it's clearly picturing like a courtroom and not lying on the witness stand. 
How about this? Choosing to believe something about someone else where there is not sufficient evidence. You ever done that? Chosen to believe something that is unsubstantiated? You ever then said those things out loud? That's called gossip. The Bible is very clear that that is a sin. But even believing in your mind before you speak it out loud is gossip in your heart. You're bearing false testimony in your heart against your neighbor. May or may not be true, but God says don't do that. Are you tired? Are you weary? At this point, two things are either happening to you. You're either like, I feel great. That means you are diagnosably a narcissist. <laughs> if you feel great at this point, I got, I got some bad news for you. And I don't even know if there's anything you can do about that. Just don't take power. Okay, so the second thing that's happening probably to most of us is we're feeling extremely convicted, like we've probably broken the 10th commandment, like in the last four hours. <laughs> so we're like, oh my gosh, why would God want us to feel that way? Spoil sport? No, this is exactly what God intended. Now, maybe you can live your life in such a way that you keep all nine of the external commands. You say, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. And then you come to the 10th, and you're like, wait, what? I have to guard my heart, too? To which every self-righteous religious person in the world is, is feeling the guilt of sin. Which is exactly why the 10th commandment is so important. God says, not so fast. Because God says, again and again, you cannot be saved by the law alone. The law was given to you to expose how truly short you were in comparison to the holiness of God. Now let there be no confusion, God says, how salvation happens. I alone am Savior and Redeemer. God saves. We can never save ourselves. If it wasn't clear until now, because you think you're a pretty good person, when you see the 10th commandment, your heart is exposed. You realize you need help. And God says, I've sent you my son to help. That's exactly what's going on. And God wants us to know it's unconditioned grace. He's giving sinners their savior, their rescuer, their redeemer, their perfect sacrifice in his son Jesus. And he just wants you to know and to recognize and accept that you need it. Because no matter how good you are, and some of you are pretty good, you come to the 10th and you realize, I've sinned. I wanted something that was not mine, that God never gave to me. And I've said, I want that. If I just had that, I'd have enough. And God says, you need rescue. You need help. And he gives us that. So does that mean that we just, we just give up and we say, well, covet and covet freely so that the grace of God may abound and God get the glory. I'll covet till the cows come home. I'll covet, I'll covet, I'll covet. God's grace, God's grace, God's grace. Apostle Paul says, by no means. So we should try to not covet. So how do we actually stop? How do we stop? Or at least slow down the heart from turning temptation into covetousness. Now, what I'm not advocating here is just keeping your coveting to yourself, which is typically what we do. <laughs> it's like, okay, I've heard about this do not covet. Let's just not let anybody know my thought life then I'll be good. No, God knows. And that might terrify you that God knows your thought life, but he does. You're not tricking anyone, so don't keep it to yourself. In fact, share it. Confess your covetousness. Then it loses its power, and it doesn't strip all the color and turn it to gray. Tell people, Ryan, I can't stop looking at this website. Ryan says, I've got a solution. Talk to Laura. <laughs> and then she fixes it. You know, like there's, there's salvation in sharing. Honesty breeds freedom. So don't just keep it to yourself. That's not what I'm advocating. Or don't just like covet with your non-Christian friends because you know they, they, they don't think that's a bad thing. I'll only gossip with these people or I'll only covet other people's stuff with a certain group. It's my covet group. Don't do that. 
and you might say, oh, I know where he's going with this. He's going to the super practical, get rid of Instacovet. And the people said, ah, yes. Sure, that's a very good and practical idea, but I don't think it's going to fix the problem. When you take out your iPhone, or if you sell, get rid of your iPhone, here's what you're going to do. The floodgates have been opened. Even if you're not looking at it, you're now coveting in the abstract. I wonder what they posted. I heard they went on vacation. I wonder what the... And now, actually, your imagination is even better than the real thing. And now you're coveting an, coveting an abstract idea, and your heart is still being drawn. So I do think it could be a good idea to get rid of Instacovet, but don't think that solves the problem. It just protects your heart. It doesn't fix your heart. So what do you do? Well, the key is found in Jesus. <laughs> in the Sermon on the Mount, let's see what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus gives us the key. Here's what he says. Matthew 6, 31 to 33. This is the famous Sermon on the Mount. I've already quoted from it a couple times about adultery and murder. Jesus says this, 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. He doesn't say that you don't need them all. He says that you need them all. What does he say? Jesus says, verse 33, but first... Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What is he saying? One, he's, again, tying covetousness to anxiousness. When you start to look around at what you don't have and what others have, it's going to create in you anxiousness. Anxiousness often turns into depression. Oftentimes those go hand in hand, not always. But, but, but Jesus gets it. He says, I know that you want all those things because they're attractive and they're beautiful and they're good most of the time. But he's also saying another thing. He's saying, be patient. We're saying, well, that's nice of you to say, God. What else can I do? Well, he's actually saying, stop. Stop. And then he says, drop. And then he says, roll. He says, you're on fire with temptation. Stop, drop, and roll. What's the stop? The stop is calm your mind down, turn off your phone. The drop is get to your knees and thank God for what you already have. And the roll is get on your back on a clear day. That's why Christianity doesn't thrive in Seattle. You can't see the stars all the time. But literally, roll onto your back during the middle of the night, look up at the universe, and remind yourself that the God who says he is your father made that, owns that, and can give you all of that. And he's promised he will. So you stop, you drop, and you roll, and you consider the heavens that are your father's. And then... By the grace of God, maybe you can wait until he gives you all things at the end of the age. That's what it means to seek the kingdom. The kingdom is an eternal kingdom. And, and yes, you don't have it all right now, and you'll see bad people with all sorts of stuff now. But when you turn and you see the heavens and you remember, I know the God who made that, who owns that. And he said his kingdom he's giving to his son and all those attached to his son then you start to realize, ah, I can wait. That's the second principle at Sedaris, if you know our 14 principles. Look up. Remember who God is. And then it's a little bit easier to wait for the kingdom to come. So what are the implications? Does it mean that one day you'll get to have your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's husband? No, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that. You won't get everything that you desire or that you think you want. He says, I'll give you everything that you need. And so when I start to think about this, the root of all uh, unsatisfaction, the root behind that, 
The desire behind that can be taken away when we start to realize that we have the greatest thing. What's the greatest thing? Augustine, the famous 4th century theologian, Augustine of Hippo, said this, our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. And he's talking about God. He's talking about God. And so when we're feeling that restlessness, when we're feeling that covetousness, when we're tempted to want to now take action either in our mind or our body to go get something, we remember that we have the greatest thing in the world, which is what? Back to Exodus. At the very end of the giving in the law, Exodus 24, let me read you something. I, I never noticed this. This is pretty cool. Look at this. Exodus 24, after Moses has given the law and even given the case law, Exodus 24, verse 9 says this. Then Moses and his brother Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone. They're using imagery to capture something that's uncapturable. It was like the very heaven for clearness. Verse 11, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. That's the 70 that came up with them. And they beheld God, and they ate, and they drank. <laughs> What's going on? They literally get to go up, seven to these men, close, not, not all the way, as we see. Moses gets a unique perspective of God. They get to come near to God, and it says, and they, they create a feast in the presence of God. So you ask, is there anything that it's okay to covet? I think it's okay to covet this. I think it's okay to see what these 70 men or what Moses or Aaron got to experience and say, I want that. I desire that. Why? Because God says, I want to give that to each and every human being that I've created, which is his presence. And if you go and you read the New Testament, time and time and time again, do you know how Jesus, you know how the apostles talk about the end of time? A wedding feast where all the people of God come and sit at a great banquet. And what do they do? They eat and they drink in the presence of God and the Lamb who is Jesus. That's something that God says, go right ahead, covet that. <laughs> Fill your heart with that. Crave that. Seek after that. Go even with your hands and your feet and seek after my presence. And that's exactly what God calls us to do. It's beautiful. Covet not your neighbor's stuff, but go right ahead and covet all those things that the Lord promises, which is himself.